oh, by the way, I got a COVID test for my cough and it came back negative. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're safe. I, I could take my mask off. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we're actually doing an episode that I'm extremely excited about. And for anyone who's listened to more than one or two episodes, they will know that uh, Michael and I love talking about body temperatures of athletes. So our guest today is Chris Blumfield-Brown from Core Body Temp, uh, which is, let's see if I can get this right, a subsidiary company of GreenTeg. Correct. Yeah, so there's a very innovative device that uh, that I'm very excited about that they've introduced that actually actively measures the core body temperature of an athlete. And this is something that Michael and I have talked about uh, just ad nauseum, and we uh, <laughs> we absolutely love this concept. So it's it's very exciting to have you on today. Welcome to the show, Chris. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on, and I'm more than happy to share some experience with this technology and and enlighten our athletes and how it can be applicable to you and in, in, in increase performance. So why don't we start off, if you can give us a quick background of, first of all, yourself and then the company, just to know that where, or just so that people know where you're coming from. Okay. I'm uh, Chris Plumfield-Brown. Uh, I'm the product manager for Core. Uh, Core has been developed through uh, various research projects and things like that for over uh, five years. The clinical study has been going on for five years, and it's a spin-off of a a special sensor technology that was um, based on a a few years um, research, PhD research, and started to be uh, developed as a sensor over 10 years ago now. And so just out of curiosity, and this is just my own question here, but uh, the the company name GreenTag, is the tag for thermoelectric generator? Is that the... That's correct. That's correct. That was the original idea. And that's uh, a spinoff of that type of technology is actually what the uh, core body temperature, the core part of the uh, technology is based upon. It's an energy transfer sensor is what we do and how it all works. Interesting. Okay, so you're measuring heat flux rather than temperature itself. Is that correct? Roughly... And and if you don't mind, uh, this might be a good time. Uh, most people don't know uh, how this energy transfer is. So I've got a good experiment. If uh, if I could um, have people to p- participate in and kind of explain this concept, is that is now a good Absolutely. time to do that? Yeah, oh, amazing. Perfect. We've we've okay. never had audience participation. Well, uh, this requires both yours, uh, Michael and Andrew. You have to participate. So, um, <laughs> I, you don't need safety goggles or a fire extinguisher for this experiment. So, just uh, play along for a minute. So, what I want you to do is grab two different types of materials, uh, non-powered, so your your computer doesn't work. So, sort of like a, a wooden desktop and a, a metal leg on your on your chair or a book and uh, a metal knife or something. And now I want you to tell me which one's warmer and which one's colder. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> I like okay. this experiment. This is great. Yes. Okay. Yep. So is the metal warmer or colder? Can you, can you, uh, can, can I get an answer from you guys? Or one sure. Of you guys? The metal definitely feels colder. 
Thank you. That's the key word in that sentence. If you didn't pick it up is the metal <laughs> feels colder. Now, I also want you to put your hand out and uh, this is North America, but I'll, I'll try you in Canada first and tell me, is it 21 degrees or 23 degrees or 20 or 19 degrees? Or if, if you're across the border, is it 73 or 76 or 71? Can you accurately tell me what the temperature is? Well, I can see my uh, <laughs> my thermostat from here, so that makes Andrew's me a little cheating. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, basically, no. in summary, is humans were really bad thermometers, but what we feel, why that piece of metal feels colder than the, and the than the piece of wood, is you feel energy transfer. So, when you grab that piece of metal, that metal is pulling more energy out of you, and that's why it feels colder. And the book pulls less energy out of you. Then, uh, um, and so that's why it feels warmer. But if you just put your hand in, hand out, it feels just the relative energy change, and it's not an absolute temperature. It's just so what you sense is energy transfer, and the green tech sensor is exact it measures exactly what you feel. It measures that energy transfer. And now here comes the whole key on how core body temperature works. If you can measure the energy transfer, then through some very complicated math you can calculate the energy source and that's your core body mm. temperature. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, actually a lot more complicated than that, but that's a, <laughs> an overview of how it works. So the energy transfer, you can fi figure out the energy source, which is your core body temperature. That's that's very interesting. I like the the very visual, or I guess maybe not visual, but the uh, <laughs> hands on. The, yeah, the hands. Very good hands on uh, experiment that you can do. That's so. Uh, hopefully, everyone's learned a little bit of something in our in our podcast already that they can take home and say, "Oh yeah, you don't feel temperature, do you? You feel energy transfer." And mm -hmm. I've definitely noticed that going out into the garage in winter when uh, you step onto a concrete floor <laughs> versus the carpet that's in the garage, it uh, definitely feels a lot cold, colder on the concrete. Yeah, and I'm not sure I made it clear, but both those pieces of metal, the metal and the wood are exactly the same temperature, right? So, yeah, then that's, they just feel different. So I'm not sure I said that earlier. So, Yeah, yeah, you did. So, okay. um, yeah, and I guess looking at other materials, if you're looking at something like steel versus aluminum, <clears throat> the aluminum would again feel colder because it's got a higher thermal conductivity, correct? Right. It's sort of like if you're walking, uh, if you're in Calgary and you're walking along and it's snowing and you see the river, uh, flowing and you know you so you know that water is warmer than the air because it's freezing and the snow's there but in the water is do you want to jump in the river because you know that's warmer <laughs> even in the summer you don't want to jump in the river here that's right it's because there's more energy transfer the energy transfer in that in that water is more than it is in the air so yeah oh, that's a good example too so um so now we have an idea of sort of how the how the sensor works. Um, you hinted at it in your introduction, um, Chris. But what is the value as athletes? And we've Andrew and I have talked about this a whole bunch of times. But uh, we want to hear you you tell us what's the value for endurance athletes in knowing what their core temperature is. What are some of the benefits of it? Okay. Uh, well, I'll just do a step back. So we debuted this, um, the technology debuted in, uh, in the Tour de France this summer. Okay. And we worked with a, a world pro team to help develop it. So we gave them exclusivity for this year's Tour de France. And after the Tour de France, uh, we've been contacted by a lot of other teams who want to use this technology. So they see the need. And now, so I just want to show that the top level people are the people who are interested in this Olympic committees, uh, Olympic organizations, top level cycling teams and other top level athletes. And cool. so and I, got, I know you guys have probably touched on it before, but 
when you're doing an athletic activity, if you're cycling or running, your core body temperature goes up um, as a result of the work. You're producing power. You're, if you're doing 300 watts, you've got an efficiency rate on a bicycle of around 30% roughly. So that means it's taking roughly 1,000 watts to make 300 watts. Mm-hmm. And that 700 watts turns into heat, and your body has to get rid of that heat. So in the Tour de France, or even in our lab, uh, we see people sustained above fever level temperatures. So we see people at um, uh, 39, 40. We've seen people over 40 degrees uh, uh, for a sustained amount of time. Um, uh, And when you're, which is normal. So it's not like, oh, this is alarming. This is what happens to people. When you do a lot of work, your temperature goes up. and when your temperature goes up, it affects your performance because what happens is your cardiac output gets diverted from the muscles producing oxygen to uh, active cooling, so to the skin surface. So sure. um, I, I like one of the Olympic organizations we work with. So I asked the question to them. I said, so when you get hot, you should say you're doing a marathon. When you're getting hotter, you should back off your effort. And they said, yes, that's what you should do. But that's not how you win gold medals. <laughs> so um, that's a good soundbite. <laughs> yeah, uh, I thought it was great. Uh, a great example. So um, there's a lot that you can do in your training to help. There's one, the easy one people can think of. If you're going to go do Kona, you know, you need to do your heat acclimatization before you get there, and that will help you greatly perform. Uh, I was just working with one of these top level triathletes coaches, and he said, "Oh, this." everyone would know his name. He, he performs really well in the heat. And I, I asked a question, I said, does he perform really well in the heat? Does he go better when it's hot? Or does he go better relative to other people when it's hotter out? And they said, oh no, he goes slower when it's hot, but he just doesn't slow down as much as the others do when it's hot. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I think so we all slow down when it's hot. There's no, there's no exception to that rule as far that, as I'm aware. Yeah, that, I mean, there's a lot of statistical data to show hotter marathons are slower, uh, hotter course, events are slower. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically be the heat, heat compensation. So, And even with marathons, I know that there was a lot of discussion around this when they were doing the two-hour attempt saying the optimal world record of the optimal fastest marathon conditions were, I think, around five to seven degrees Celsius. So they're, they were targeting specific races where they knew the environmental conditions would facilitate the faster or the higher effort. Yep, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interesting enough, we saw it in the, the Tour de France that uh, even on the – or even in the Giro and the other stages – even on the really cold days, the guy's uh, core body temperature almost got to the same amount. It's just that they could do that. They could, but their power output was just slightly better. <laughs> um, so that even on cold days, you still get really hot is what it is. So it's just not a hot weather um, phenomenon. It's, a, it's more based on work than it is on environmental conditions. And I'm sure everyone has felt this too, where you go out for a ride and you start off and you're cold and then you start shedding layers. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point I was going to make. Yeah. Well, I beat you to it <laughs> this time. Anyway, that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> so are you guys, um, or can, w- do you have an opinion on heat training? Because we've been dealing with, uh, quite a few high level, uh, coaches and organizations uh, mm-hmm. talking about heat block training and, and do you guys have an opinion on that or? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's a lot of value in doing it, uh, especially if, well, there's there's very good evidence for it if you're going to be 
competing in a race that is that is warm. And I would classify that as anything above, you know, kind of 20 degrees Celsius. Um, and the longer the race, the more value that heat training is going to mm-hmm. have. And this is doubly so for us in Canada um, for competing in early season, long course, let's say triathlon races. Like um, the classic example would be something like Ironman Texas, which is in uh, in April, I believe. It, anyway, it's it's fairly early on, and it, it you know for us it's still quite cold, and so it's it's very difficult to or you wouldn't get heat training from ambient conditions. You'd have to actually purposefully um, train in the heat in order to acclimate. So there, there's the case for improving performance in hot races, I think is very strong. Um, and then there may be a case for improving performance across the board, you know, through mechanisms like, uh, you know, increase in blood plasma volume, uh, regardless yeah. of the temperature of the race. So some coaches I know advocate heat training, even if you're uh, training for, or doing a block of heat training, even if yep. you're training for a cool race. So that, I'm that, definitely that a last fan. point is, yeah, the one that seems to be a, a common phenomenon now when we're talking to a lot of higher level coaches. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think the uh, the evidence is still not super conclusive, but I think it's um, I think you're probably as long as you can do it correctly and not not sabotage the rest of your training. I think it's a matter of priorities. Uh, my own personal opinion would be that it's in the more marginal gains category, and that's why when you say high level coaches, that makes sense to me because if they're training, you know, the top 0.1 percent of the athletes in the world, then they're the ones looking for the the marginal gains. Um, and for them, it would make more of a difference than if, you know, the folks that I coach are, are age groupers and for them, I'd rather get quality work out of them rather than do a, a block of, um, heat acclimation training, which would not be quality work, uh, in preparation for a cooler race. So I wouldn't necessarily do it, but, uh, I can totally see the value of doing it for high performance folks, but that's a little bit off topic. <laughs> and, no, no, no. It's all straight on topic. So, uh, this, this heat training, um, one of the some of the feedback we're getting is like you said there's a blood plasma uh, you get the increase and the the, the the feedback we're getting from these other people is they're actually seeing almost better or, or more consistent gains with heat training blocks than altitude training they're like um hmm. recently we were interviewing the couple of guys we had a round table and they were saying uh, like they'll send six guys to an altitude training camp and two of them get really good results and the other four are you know just like a normal, they could have done it. Maybe, maybe not as good as results or it's not as much progress where the heat mm-hmm. training, they're getting six out of six. And there oh, wow. is, okay. yeah. Um, and, uh, there's a couple of advantages in, in heat training you can just do in your garage. So you don't need to mm-hmm. go up into Alps. Um, so it's a lot easier to con- do and control. And, uh, the stuff with the blood plasma and, uh, there's even, some new good research that you can uh, find some good links on our website uh, that we're trying to make some of these references available. Um, there's a lot of good research that's been done on the heat training and this, this heat training blocks, there might be more in it. It's more than, it seems to be more than just heat acclimatization. They're seeing even improved performance, even in the, the like the cooler weather conditions. So um, there's been quite a bit of evidence of that where you do heat training blocks and even in, you go do a, a cooler weather uh, performance and that mm-hmm. your um, still performance is still going up. 
Well, anecdotally too, I know, you know, with myself and with folks I work with, uh, when you're, you know, our summers are generally pretty warm in Toronto. And so you, you know, you're running and cycling outside in the heat and it's uncomfortable and your performance isn't amazing. And then that first cool weekend, whenever it happens (laughs) in September, you feel like a champion and like, whoa, where does this fitness come from? You know, obviously it's a, you know, there's less thermal, external thermal load or it's easier to shed heat, however you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, to your point, it absolutely, I mean, this is purely anecdotal, but absolutely yeah. feels like there's an effect. Um, so, uh, so, uh, you know, you've outlined a really good use case for, uh, the sensor in training for, um, heat acclimation. Is there any utility in, uh, in race conditions? Of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, basically, uh, you know, um, that's how you win gold medals. Uh, the, the first <laughs> one is, uh, strategic cooling. So. Uh, that's probably the easiest one and the, and the most straightforward one. You're starting to see it. I love this one. Yeah. Yes. Cooling at the right times, not when you're past the point, but before the point, being aware of it. Uh, and also, uh, so cooling, hydration, being aware of when you're getting close to this and, and effort moderation. So if you're getting up to, you know, where kind of your peak areas, it's better to back off a little bit and kind of maintain that. Uh, and try to do some strategic cooling to be able to keep up that duration for a long period of time, like if you're doing a triathlon. Um, so, I mean, the, the applications is, it's not really complex. It's like, I'm getting hot or I'm on my way to getting hot. I need to start cooling before I get there. Um, and and if I am getting there, if I am getting close to this quote unquote red zone, then I should try to pace myself, change my pacing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm not going to have a uh, uh, catastrophic failure, you know, or, or really drop down because the, the kind of the blowing up phase, a lot of times it seems to be almost when, uh, when people are blowing up, uh, quote unquote, blowing up. Do you use that term in triathlons to blow up? Like we sure. do inside. Yeah. Yep. There's lots of terms, but that's a yeah, good yeah, one. Yeah. I especially yeah. use that term for my own. <laughs> uh, many times it's, it's, uh, your body has such a strong mechanism to, for the overheating that, you know, it's trying to limit the amount of heat production. So, um, and we've seen when people have getting really hot, it takes them longer to recover. They feel like quote unquote, blow up and it takes uh, the recovery periods longer. So to keep you away from that zone. So being able to use that live data to be able to know where you are and keep out of those danger zones. And then of course, the the safety side of it, keeping away from not only blowing up, but getting into dangerous heat stroke uh, situations. So it almost sounds like this was custom built for me uh, <laughs> because I've I've had so many issues with heat in the past and we've done some episodes talking about this, but I raced Ironman Cozumel last year and uh, it's late November. So you can imagine in Calgary, it's not particularly warm. I think I went from like <laughs> minus 20, minus 25, somewhere around there to plus 25 to 28 degrees. Um, So a bit of a temperature swing there. And to be honest, most of the week when I was training leading up to the race, it was fine. And then it it, uh, race day, it was two or three degrees warmer. Um, So even coming out of the swim, I noticed I was already hot. Um, It just had that extra little edge on the day of the race. So having having gone around two laps of the the 60 kilometer course, um, I basically popped at that point um, where my power just went from my target down by about 70 watts and it was just like soft pedaling to get back in yeah and uh so i pulled out of the race at that point and i <clears throat> i pulled off into the shade and just sat there for half an hour letting my heart rate come down but i suspect this would have been very easy to notice and i 
you know, in my mind, I probably knew, okay, I'm running too hot, but I'll just push through it. Um, and then eventually my body got ahead of me and it said, okay, you're slowing down no matter what. So, um, yeah, having, having access to that information, I guess would have helped me out considerably. Um, maybe it would have helped me moderate my effort, like you said, to, to help finish the race, or maybe I could have done, done it in a little bit more of a safe manner. Um, but it was very relevant conditions for something like this. It would have been perfect to have that. Yeah. And, um, I think that's a, a great example. And I, we, uh, kind of view it as we just think it's just a, another important matrix that's really been difficult to access in the past. Um, just like heart rate and power cadence and speed, it's just a, another, uh, important piece of the puzzle that just makes everything much more clear. Um, and, and I think the reason this hasn't been really accessible in the past is it's been difficult and expensive. So I'm not sure if you've ever been involved in any research projects when you measure core body temperature, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. You know, you have to use uh, either invasive, generally invasive uh, procedures to do it. So. Fortunately, when I did it, we used a pill. <laughs> so, yep. of, of and the not the other option. <laughs> yes, of the methods yeah, yeah. available, I was, uh, that was my preference. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is a test that was relating to cycling and the heat. And it was looking more at the effects of what happens on the, the what happens to the body when you overheat. Um, but it was very interesting to, to see those results. And I'd never actually been able to observe my core body temperature before. And I yeah. wasn't able to see it real time because of the, um, the impact of the placebo effect on the experiment. But afterwards oh, looking right. at it, it was, uh, uh, it was quite, quite interesting to see how it just constantly increased over time. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating to look at. So this is something for me, it's, uh, as I've said many times, it's uh, a, a huge personal passion to understand this technology or this information a little bit more. And so what did you find surprising when you did the study before and when you got actually to see your temperatures? Did you, did you have any idea that you got that warm when you're doing activities? Uh, it was the linearity of it that really surprised me. Um, the exact conditions that uh, that we were riding in um, so it was a 45-minute time trial at, I think it was 72% FTP. So it was a reasonable effort. It didn't start out that hard. But by the end of it, um, while the environmental conditions were, I think, 31 Celsius and 80% humidity, so there was virtually no external heat transfer. So you were just acting as a heat sink. Yeah. Um, so just, and that's why there's the linear increase, because you're putting in X amount of watts, and that's just going to... 100% increasing your your body temperature basically instead of uh, convecting away some of the heat. So it was just this constant linear increase in temperature throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire test. So um, seeing that and seeing how heart rate was so closely tied to it, and this is what you mentioned before, where your heart starts to divert blood to cooling. Yep. Uh, my body was trying to do this. It wasn't effective because of the environmental conditions, but it didn't know that. Um, but it was just, uh, yeah, it's such a fascinating thing to actually be able to see how your, your body reacts and, and how this correlates to the increase in body temperature. Yeah. And, um, and interesting enough, did, uh, swimming, if you think about swimming in your thermal regulation, your thermal regulation systems don't work when you swim. <laughs> uh, no, and this is, uh, this is something I noticed in Cozumel as well, because I'm used yeah. to swimming in fairly cool water. And when you get into some of this, um, the very warm Caribbean waters, uh, it's, it's hot. You get, out the, you get out of the water sweating, uh, yeah. which is not something I'm used to at the, uh, the frigid pools I'm, I normally go to. Yeah. 
And that was, I was really surprised on that one, how hot the swimmers actually got for these big open, we were uh, working with some researchers and the swimming part, the, the, they're, they're still getting up 39, 40 degrees. And I said, how does this happen when wow. you're sitting in a big uh, heat Massive soaker? heat sink. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they said, well, actually, it's the evaporation process that cools you more than actually submersion in the water. It's a different type of cooling system. Mm-hmm. And so the evaporation process is only on the visible parts, which is essentially your arms. So you're in the water, you're still sweating, but it just doesn't work. So... I thought that was, I was really surprised yeah. when I learned that one. So goes to show you how much evaporative cooling plays a role. Yeah. We've, yep. uh, Andrew and I have done, have done episodes on the math of this. And, uh, if, if you take evaporative cooling out of the equation, then it just, you know, your, your, your cooling is, you know, 10% as effective as it would be otherwise. It's uh, it's yep. a huge difference. Yeah. Well, I want to jump back to the device itself a little bit, Chris. Yep. And uh, can you describe sort of what it looks like, uh, where it's mounted, you know, just so that our, our listeners, I mean, I will encourage everyone to go check out the website and we'll uh, put a link in our show notes to it. <laughs> Spoiler just so alert, folks can, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a rectal thermometer, so. <laughs> it's not a rectal thermometer, listeners. Yeah, so you thank don't, goodness. Yeah. Yep. Because, uh, yep. Uh, I've taken you a lot of the wouldn't sell as many units if it was, Chris. <laughs> no. No. And um, uh, so it's just a, it's a small device. Uh, if I'm saying it in metric, it's roughly 40, 45 millimeters by um, 20. Actually, I'm measuring it here again. Uh, 30, 45 by 30 millimeters. Um, and if so you're inch in... Inch and a half by uh, two inches or so? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And it it actually just clips. It can um, clip onto your heart rate monitor on the strap of your heart rate monitor. So it's oh, we cool. position it on this chest. So you just slip it on the side of your heart rate monitor. And to turn it on, you just shake it, and then you put your heart rate monitor on, and that's all you have to do. Um, if you want to do it for 24-hour monitoring, we have these medical-grade um, tapes uh, that we uh, double-sided adhesive tapes that we design mm-hmm. and we produce. So you just stick it on. I have. I'm wearing. I wear them all the time, pretty much 24 hours a day. Don't even notice it. But yeah, we, and uh, the pro teams, they just put on the heart rate monitors, and it stays on there all week uh, or three weeks. Um, so it's real simple, and then it broadcasts in uh, BLE and Ant Plus. Okay. So it just works with your existing devices, your Wahoo Byte computer, your Garmin devices, your smartwatches, and we're expanding cool. the, the all the devices we work with. And they record it in the fit file, so then you just look it up in Garmin Connect or tr- uh, Today's Plan or WK, uh, WKO5. So... Um, we're trying to work with all the uh, existing data ecosystems. So there's nothing new to mm-hmm. do and things like that. So is it through uh, Connect IQ app or something with Garmin that you need? or is Yeah, it a for, that's what request? we're doing now. And I can't talk about too many of the... Uh, yes, for right now, it's Connect IQ app. So we, we talked a little bit about attaching it to the heart rate monitor, but <clears throat> on your website, you've got pictures of it in other locations as well. So the wrist, I think. Um, and maybe upper arm, was that, uh, was that uh, one? Yes. Um, so the most accurate place on your body is the apical, the, the side of your chest. And that's ex- right where you clip on your heart rate monitor, just on the side of the, where, um, on the side. That's uh, probably the most accurate place that we've found so far. But there's other places for convenience sake um, that we, we work with. So we also work on uh, people, um, we've had some people, they use it on the, the bicep of their arm. So just a, like, a, like a PPG heart rate monitor that goes on your arm. They actually mm-hmm. clip it to that. Um, and 
since this is technology that can be bedded into uh, other products, um, which is the, the green tech uh, business model, is to have this available. There's, um, it can work in other places in the body also, including the, the wrist. So um, uh, I'm trying to say this correctly, or <laughs> <where> I can't <laughs> say too much. So if, if there was a video on and I was pointing to this thing on my, on my, on my, on my wrist that I look at the time, there's, we're working with people who build these devices that are looking embedding the same technology into that. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, cool. Uh, you know, the, the, the development process is all apart. So basically, but your thermal regulation is completely different at your wrist than, uh, and than it is on your, on your torso. So we, run a, we have to run a, a different algorithm at the wrist than we do on the chest. So it is slightly different, but it's the same exact technology. That was going to be my next question, actually, was was how do you accommodate some of these different measurement locations? Because your wrist is going to be, it's going to fluctuate a lot more, I would assume, in, in the surface temperature yep. there. Yeah, it's uh, and a great example is when you get a fever. So if you're uh, getting sick and you get a fever on your chest, uh, what happens is your skin temperature gets warmer. Um, the whole mechanism for fever is quite fascinating. It's, uh, it acts like you're getting cold. It, it shuts down your extremities and just turns off your sweating cooling mechanism. And that's how you get fever. It just basically pumps the blood in a small area and it slowly heats up. So your wrist, when you get a fever, actually gets colder. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Never thought of that oh, That before. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. It does. And you kind of feel cold when you're, when you're starting to run a fever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, your extremities kind of get colder and your, your, your torso gets warmer. And it's just a simple... Uh, mechanical uh, process. So, yeah. super cool. So I thought it was this reaction: your body gets hotter, but it's not. It just sort of says, like, "Okay, it's time to get uh, a little bit of fever and uh, increase the thermostat." And we just do that by just not cooling the things off. Awesome. So, with these different measurement locations, then how does the how does the accuracy or how does the measurement change, and how do you uh, how do you deal with that, and how does it compare to the uh, the standard the rec rectal thermometers that everyone would love to test out. <laughs> and the reason we asked this question not because we want to talk about rectal thermometers so much, but because <laughs> we've uh, we've had a lot of um, on the podcast and kind of we've talked about amongst ourselves. Um, we've talked about a lot of devices and we've had them on as guests, as I mentioned. And sometimes the you know the, the quality of the data in some of these is a little bit suspect. You know, yeah, it's not just, quite medical grade. It, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to verify. It's hard to get, you know, you get you get all sorts of stuff out there that that purports to show, you know, your metabolism and your hydration status and some of them are great, but others are, you know, they're just not they're not validated, you know. They're you you just get basically it the only evidence for for accuracy is their own claims. So that's that's kind of part of the background of why why we're asking this question. <laughs> okay, uh, and that's it's fair enough and very legitimate. Um, so we've been involved in clinical studies, uh, as I mentioned before, over five years, um, uh, clinical and data access, uh, and working with different sports people as organizations to get this data. And on our website, we have some of the, we have a validation and accuracy that, and we can't talk about all the programs we're involved in, but we've worked with uh, Intel Hospital, Zurich Children's Hospital, uh, various sports organizations, uh, different research papers. So we've actually been working with external people to help uh, uh, validate and help us actually with this data acquisition. Um, 
So even to get a reference uh, data, we, you know, um, as you said, we've used lots of e-pills. Some of the studies we've used uh, heart, catheter, uh, heart catheters, which is probably mm -hmm. the most accurate way. Uh, and then plus also uh, rectal thermometers in some cases. Um, fortunately, I haven't had to test that one personally. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and hundreds and thousands of e-pills. So we base our data, um, we using uh, those as a gold standard, uh, and then we base that, and then we're working with other people um, to further their research, which helps validate our solution. So I think on our website, we point that out, and I can also provide additional information for that. So it's, and actually the whole question of what is core body temperature and measuring it mm -hmm. accurately is really a difficult thing. Um, it, it totally is. Yeah. It's it really hard. And, and those ear thermometers, look in the package and see how accurate they are. I say they're <laughs> random number generators between around 36.5. Um, and I, I, I can't do the experiment with you because you need a device. Just measure, uh, have you measure yourself three times or, one, or um, do each ear like three times, uh, alternate, see the readings and have someone measure you three times and watch the readings. And You'd be surprised. Uh, professionals, they can get consistent readings, but a lot of times it's a quite um, it's quite impressive how inaccurate some of these devices we always thought were accurate aren't that accurate. Yeah, my uh, my little kid goes to daycare and they have a very strict screening protocol for COVID. And one yep. of the things they do is they take his tympanic temperature with you know the ear temperature and uh, and they yeah the, you know like this morning he was at thirty three point six. I'm like I don't. Take that right. He's not like that's 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 you know that's hypothermia. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely yeah, yeah. not that cold. He was perfectly but, happy and running yeah, around, but even though it's snowing outside. Yeah, but the the ear thermometer, you probably guys probably just walked outside and and it was windy or something, and that's really common yeah, in cold. the ear. Yep. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Oh, fair point. Did you find that there's much uh, inter-individual variability between, um, you know, well, between, let's say, le between sexes or between body composition? Uh, I don't know if it's like subcutaneous adipose tissue has any role to play. Um, so the answer is uh, yes. And can I generally say that one's one way or the other? I, it seems to be very individual. How can I say that? So mm -hmm. it's hard to prescribe like one thing. And I guess maybe analogy is heart rate. What is that? You know, there is a, you can kind of estimate and kind of guess things on people's fitness levels, but, uh, and draw some general conclusions, but some people don't get as hot as other people. Um, Well-trained athletes definitely seem to run at a lower temperature than people who are like starting the season or not as in shape as other people. Uh, as mm -hmm. we found, but then again, that's just a, a general rule. It seems to be very individual um, where limits are and where uh, and and how their body reacts. So. That makes sense. But what I was asking is, um, is there variability uh, between the correlation of your device and and let's say the uh, you know the other gold standard devices in uh, different populations? Uh, so. So where do we have inaccuracies compared to the other devices? <laughs> That's right. So is there yeah, yeah. Are the inaccuracies in some members of the population diff greater than, than in others is what I'm asking? No, not really. Not at the time. Um, I know we um, have an ongoing program where we're increasing the or, or doing further validation. So what we're doing is uh, we're, we're trying to increase validation in certain areas. Maybe we know we're a little weak in certain areas. 
uh, or certain activities, or we just don't have enough data yet. So mm-hmm. I know there's a program. It's well, actually, that's for a different body location where they're measuring that. So for infants, they're measuring at a different body location. So we're doing increased uh, validation on infants. Um, uh, or uh, actually, a program that we're doing is we're trying to do increased validation on uh, Paralympians. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of times they're, um, they can react quite a bit different, their thermal regulation system, because they essentially have less surface area for the cooling and, and, temp- and temperatures greatly affects them. So that's a really interesting program that uh, we're really kind of proud to be you know, involved in and, and working with those groups. Um, so how do I answer this question? So we're... we're it's not a, a static thing. So we do firmware updates regularly where we're periodically looking for new areas to increase um, accuracy. So we continually trying to evolve this. So now we're going through, obviously this is a newer product. So we're going through the, the normal stages is um, we have, we, we're quite happy with the accuracy in cycling, but mm-hmm. we're never happy enough. So we're always trying to make it better. So we're doing increasing validation testing and working with other people's to provide data and then areas where we know we're uh, lacking in some maybe testing we're trying to increase our data sets and do increased validation and then use that data again to uh, increase our algorithm accuracy so but right now there is no big um areas where we know we're completely off the scale at the moment so uh but we know there's some areas that we can still make some improvements so did i answer your question right that time <laughs> Yes, that's what that's what I was after, and I think that's a very, I, I you know, personally, I think that's the, that's a kind of the, <laughs> the, the quote unquote right answer. Like, <laughs> I, I always, I'm always suspicious when people when people tell me that and they're like, nope, my device is our device is perfect. We're yeah, <laughs> we're already there. Yeah. Well, like, and uh, for the 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 Paralympics, we've done not enough testing to say yes, we're definitely sure this works. And and the and the paraplegics, it's such a different variety set that we can't really answer that question yet. So. The way we try to say is we're trying to do increased valid- validity testing. But the first results, we just did some, I think it was last month, on three or four different um, paraplegics and was actually pretty good. So um, that's optimistic because we we were afraid that it, we weren't going to be there. So, yep. We had uh, on our on our show a couple months ago, maybe three months ago now, uh, a Paralympic basketball player from Canada, um, who is also a sports scientist doing mm-hmm. research in heat transfer, and so she she actually introduces to the idea what you just said about how um, uh, folks with uh, with uh, who are para quadriplegics have reduced reduced um, cooling ability because they actually don't sweat in the in the in the limbs. And I hope I'm getting this right because I was I'm just trying to remember what Erica had told us. Um, that they that they're not able to sweat um, in the limbs that are that have no no longer have function, um, and that obviously reduces their ability to cool themselves through evaporative cooling, as we talked about. Right. Um, so she might be someone you may want to talk to. So she's uh, active, she's doing a PhD, I believe. I don't think she's done it yet. She's either post postdoc or or doing her PhD now. Um, no, that's uh, that's the stuff we we really like to be involved in. Um, so yes, that would be a great contact. I will, I'll connect so, you to for sure. She's a she's a 
a great, great person and uh, super useful uh, to us. Whenever, whenever he transfer questions in athletics, <laughs> I always go to her. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating, and and we as a company are are quite uh, proactive. We really encourage or try to work with people doing this kind of research, and not only that. Um, We've been involved in quite a few projects for uh, COVID screening because obviously temperature is a, a indication mm-hmm. of that. And, and actually, um, and two two different hospital programs we're using. They were just using. Uh, I think I can. I'll say I'll give them boost. As I said earlier, I, we, they were using Garmin watches and our device and using that data to do early detection of. Um, uh, COVID. So the people got diagnosed positive. They were just given watches and a special app. So that was pretty cool. So we we cool. really try to be involved actively in those kind of programs. And and like I kind of say, it, it's rare that you kind of come up with something that's a, a good technology that, um, one, we hope has a good business plan behind it so we, we can stay in business, but we, you can actually do some good um, you know, and being involved in sports is great and being involved in the general kind of health and well-being of the society is um, is quite exciting uh, as this technology can be used for other uh, disease uh, diagnostics. We're involved in uh, a couple of projects to detect um, through, uh, uh, sorry, I, I might be going on a little bit too long, but I think this no, is no, a really no. interesting topic. Um, we do 24-hour day monitoring. The device, as I said, you can, it's easy to wear. So um, there's a are you aware that your temperature, your body temperature is not static throughout the day? Mm-hmm. Do you know it? Okay. Yeah. Through the circadian, circadian rhythm. Yeah. That, 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 that's, yeah. that's the perfect key word. Thank you. <laughs> circadian rhythm. Um, this is basically your temperature generally drops when you sleep and then kind of rises during the day, rises more during physical activity. Um, but uh, analyzing circadian cycles is, looks like it's a, Early, de- uh, early detection or detection of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So, oh, whoa. Really? Okay, yeah. so disruption in those cycles, is that the theory that might... Yeah, yeah. and uh, burnout or people are burnout. So when you're burnout or you're really fatigued, your circadian cycle flattens out. Uh, oh, cool. Alzheimer's, it's a shift. Uh, and and uh, please forgive any listeners. Um, I am not the researchers. I work with the researchers. So if some of the details I'm giving are slightly inaccurate... It's my fault. Um, it's just that I've, I've probably uh, saying the details wrong. But uh, Alzheimer's is a, a shift in their circadian cycle. So they say it's off like about eight hours. So they get cold during the day and they warm up in the evening. And Parkinson, huh. it's a shift in the uh, magnitude. So the amplita- amplification of the circadian cycle. And um, in the Parkinson's research I was just speaking to uh, a few weeks ago, they said we can definitely predict someone's going to get Parkinson's disease. We're just not sure what we can do about it yet. So, hmm. um, yeah, it's really exciting to be a part of some of these programs. Uh, sepsis, blood poisoning, it's a, a great way to see that because it's early detection when the, the fever spikes happen. So there's potential we can, thousands of people die from this disease, blood poisoning every year. So if we can help in that way, it's, it's, um, it's a great thing to be involved in. That's that's super interesting. It's it's awesome, yeah, as you say, to have such a broad reach, not just in athletics. Yep. And I love to hear this because as excited as I get about sports technology, I realize it's not going to save the world. But um, <laughs> hearing, <It's not. laughs> sorry, Michael, um, oh. hearing hearing these kind of cross pollination applications um, that that makes it very useful to continue to do this research. So it's something that can benefit everyone from athletes over to people who are trying to 
uh, research disease and and actually improve people's uh, standard of living through that. And and just um, and there's also a, a big push now. So monitoring people 24 hours a day is obviously a kind of growing area in, in sports performance. So this I think is just another kind of um, piece in that puzzle again. So monitoring, you know, your sleep activity, your sleep amount, your circadian cycle, your uh, resting heart rate, your your dietary. Mm-hmm. It just helps paint the whole picture when you're trying to uh, work in performance area. We've talked about this a little bit uh, on the show in the past about how there is, you know, it seems like every every week or every month, there's a, a new device that measures something new. We've talked about heart rate variability quite a bit. We've talked yeah. about, you know, measuring it live versus once a day. Um, we've talked about all sorts of, you know, uh, calculated performance metrics. And the conclusion that I, you know, and I'm just one person, <laughs> that, I, that I've come through in my coaching practice is that often the this proliferation of, of extra data isn't tremendously useful. And I'm not trying to knock at all what you guys are doing. It's just, it seems like there's, there's a, a paucity of uh, good guidance on what to do with the information. And there is an, you know, an increasing amount of, of, of data. And so it's almost, uh, it's, it's easy to, in my, again, in my coaching experience, it's easy to dive down some of these rabbit holes without actually, getting some really useful, um, you know, for coaching performance improvement. So my question to you would be, Chris, uh, are you also coming out with, uh, or through your partners, um, kind of uh, tools for analyzing and making, let's say in our case, training decisions um, from, uh, from body temperature data. So you're, what, you, what you were telling us earlier about uh, using it for racing makes perfect sense to me. I can totally see the application. Using it for, um, for uh, blocks of, uh, of uh, heat training, again, I can totally see the application, you know, because the science says when you hit a certain, certain threshold temperature, that's when, you know, you want to spend some time at that temperature and that's how heat training works. Um, so I can see, really see the value of it in, in that context. Cause otherwise it's impossible to do that in my opinion, other than just like work really hard for an hour <laughs> without yep. a fan on and see what happens. Uh, but in terms of 24 hour measurement, um, and outside of the medical context, but in the, specifically in the training field, um, have you, do you have any, any research on what do you do with that information? How, how can you, how, how does it make you a better athlete? How does it make you better athlete? Okay, yeah. so maybe uh, I'm just wondering if I'm going to get in trouble, but talk about this. So the, the <laughs> first part of your conversation, I think, was it was perfect, uh, which is basically there's a huge influx of data, and and it's really uh, and, and I'm not sure I told you my background. Uh, I was a race car engineer for 15 years, so cool. I I was a data analyst. That's what I was. Yeah, you know, I looked at data all the time, and 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 sports uh, tech. Um, I've been involved in sports tech and biometrics and things for quite a while also. And to me, when I look at data, it's it's only part of the piece of the puzzle. So it's easy to get overwhelmed or be too data centric. But for me, when you look at data, uh, I used to have people say, you know, and on a race car, you know, uh, on a simple race car, you know, we'd monitor 170 things. So it, it's standard. Uh, so people say, and it's easy to get lost in the data and lose the plot. Mm-hmm. So basically, people say, what do you look for the data? And I say, I look for things. I, I know what everything should look like. So I'm looking for things that don't look right anymore. Um, so you're looking for things that aren't what you expect. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then if the they're not there, the then trend, you do right? that. So, sorry? Yeah. Disruptions in the trend? 
Yeah, it's sort of like when you're on your bike and you have a power meter. Generally, when I look at a power meter, I don't say, oh, what's my power? I say, I should be doing about 300 watts now. And if I look down, I'm doing 230. I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Or if I'm doing 440 and it's, it's the start <laughs> of a, a time trial or something, I'm saying, okay, calm it down. You feel yeah. really strong now, but if you keep this up, it's not going to last. So, you know, you're using that as a reference. So always for me is data is to back up what you think is already right. And, and you know, how people feel and, and how they, their instincts works is still a really important matrix. And now on top of that, so how can you use this data uh, on, on top of that? And basically, it's looking for things we're trying to detect to t- uh, fatigue, overtraining, uh, onset of illness. Um, it's not rocket science, again, what you're looking for. And it's, not, and it's trends in the data, too. Um, so you're looking for uh, uh, women's menstruation cycles or ovulation mm-hmm. cycles. You can kind of detect that in temperature changes. So you're just looking for these trends. And when you're starting to see like your circadian cycle flattening out, then you maybe know along with your HRV and along with how you're feeling in general, and maybe you're getting too much in the over overtraining. So again, it's just a piece of the puzzle. And and it's not one data set that makes everything perfect. It's just the, the combination of everything that helps paint this picture. Does that answer your question a little bit? So It does. Um, and I think that's the, that's the right approach. And it's, you know, uh, I think the, my only, my only, it's not, it's not even an argument against it. it I think you're hundred percent spot on. I do. I do agree. Uh, I just think that's, it's easier said than done. And it's, it's so easy for us, especially in, you know, in cycling and triathlon where a, a lot of us are, and I paint, I definitely put myself in this basket, very, you know, data orientated and, um, and, and gadget loving, um, and looking for, you know, the, the, some advantage, uh, to do what we do better. Um, and, it's uh, it's it is definitely sometimes easy to to miss the forest for the trees yep. to use that metaphor. Yeah, I think I think you're right, uh, and I do think that generally speaking, having access to more data is useful. And I also think that you know heart rate variability uh, is there's some really good research on it, and um, and uh, but I don't think there's like a final stake in the ground on it. But things like heart rate um, and things like body temperature are kind of key. You know, they're the, I forget what the doctors call it, like the, the key physiological markers, you know, the, the, like yep. that and blood pressure are things that, that you'll, that they'll measure if you're ever in the hospital. Um, and I think that bo- that body temperature does tell a lot and, and the science of, uh, of its application to training and to maybe even just general well-being, as you say, is, is still fairly early on, I think. Yeah. The, um, and just to expand on that, uh, yeah, and I think we're in agreement that data is great, but you you have to. It's a, again a whole holistic view that you got to take a view. And I yeah, still I agree. and I'll give myself a plug. I think core body temperature <laughs> is an important one of those metrics, just like heart rate, just like blood pressure, just like how many hours you're training. It's just another piece in the whole big piece of the puzzle. And there there has been a lot of studies on. Uh, on the effects of temperature, and there's still an o- ongoing work there. We're involved with quite a few of the people doing some ongoing studies. Okay. But one of the things that we we are really see changing, especially one of the Olympic organizations to get ready for Tokyo, they spent five years. They had a team for their Olympic team uh, just dedicated to heat, 
uh, for five years prior to Tokyo Olympics. So, mm -hmm. so now it's going to be six years. <laughs> yeah, yeah Tokyo is supposed to be super hot, right? That's super the, hot. So they were yeah. doing a lot of work to prepare for that to win gold, more gold medals. Um, so, but what we see Core allowing to do is first that research. They're only doing it with e pills, which go for 70, 80 euros or Canadian dollars, probably close to hundred dollars per pill. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you got a team, say you got a basketball team, so many players each, and so many practices, it, that adds up to be a big cost. Yeah. Right away. So we actually see that we're going to help facilitate change all this research and be able to bring all this information down to levels that haven't done that. And so we're expecting more advances quicker in this area than there have been able to do in the past. No, that makes a ton of sense because yeah, you're, you're removing cost as a barrier to research. Whereas, you know, they might only do some very studies where they thought the, you know, the, the efficacy would be highly likely versus studies where they may, you know, they may find something, they may not find something and they wouldn't do it because of the cost of the equipment. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. And plus to administer with an e-pill, you need a separate uh, reader and then the data stream is separate. So now with Core, the data is incorporated into your FIT files. Everything's in the same place. So, you know, you see your heart rate, you see your power, you see your running pace, you see mm -hmm. your core body temperature and it's easy. And then you, you get that data all the time. So just completely is changing the trends they're going to see. Um, it was really interesting. I, I saw some trends in the data because that's my background is data kind of analysis. Um, and I was asking some of these top researchers and I say, have you seen data like this? And they said, look, we've never had this much data before <laughs> over a, a prolonged event at such intensity. So we're, we, we're not sure the answer. Maybe it has to do fatigue. Maybe it had to better to acclimatization. Um, we can't answer that question. It's a great question to ask, but we're, we're not sure. So that was their answer is we have never had access to this much data before. And that was just one team in the Tour de France um, on a few different riders that we had data through the whole event. And the, they're like, wow, this is going to completely, I hopefully going to change their, their field of study. So, and, and open up new opportunities for coaches and the like um, to add more insight or better optimize uh, training. So, uh, we're trying to help facilitate those things and work with people that can help facilitate that kind of information. That's a, that's awesome. That's really really good to hear that it's uh, it has such broad applications and it's it's really you know this technology is potentially opening up a lot of doors for uh, both you know sports science nerds like me, but also for you know for people who are who are working on uh, on real life uh, life critical uh, illnesses and conditions too. So that's great to hear. Yeah, I was just going to add one last bit that I forgot to add when we were talking about the, because um, this just happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, and when you ask about validity of the device, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, we now have clearance to sell this as a clinical thermometer in North America. Oh, so you got the medical device clearance. Uh, yeah, how it works, it's under the emergency act, so they kind of fast track. Mm. So we're now clinically able to be sold as a, um, a clinical thermometer in North America, which or in the United States, excuse me, United States. Right. So yeah, they're definitely they're definitely pushing uh, pushing things very quickly in in the U.S. Yep. these days for. And uh, we're I think the only accurate kind of device now besides an e pill or something that you can continuous monitoring core body temperature. So hmm, very cool. So Chris, thank you very much for taking the time. This has been a, a really interesting conversation and, uh, and I've learned a ton and I'm really, uh, now I'm really interested. 
All right. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity, and it's been really fun. I think we've exceeded our time, um, and I <laughs> hopefully we didn't go on too many heat transfer nerd topics, so everyone is able to follow along. And and um, yeah, it's an exciting new area, and I think uh, uh, see this space. Uh, I think there we're, we're going to see more in the near future on uh, and really good applications of this technology. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Chris. I mean, this is uh, this is always really fun for us to talk about. Um, and so we'll put a link to the website on our show notes. And I guess that's where folks can learn more and read the articles that you mentioned and also purchase a unit for themselves. Is that right? Yep, that's that's correct. And um, and find out for yourself why over half the teams of the Pro Peloton are contacting us and interested <laughs> in adopting this technology for the coming year. So. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so Chris, thanks again. And listeners, thank you as always for, uh, for tuning in and checking out Endurance Innovation. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend, help us spread the word, uh, tell them what you learned today and uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like us, then uh, consider supporting us on Patreon at uh, uh, patreon.com slash Endurance Innovation. Thanks for listening. Some of the research I've been told or made aware of recently is uh, putting ice on the back of your neck might not be a good idea because what happens is it that's the cooling of the blood going to the brain that controls your thermal regulation system. So your brain thinks oh. it's cooler, yeah. but your body's still hotter, so it's not going to do the same kind of operations. Yeah, so, so you're gonna have you're gonna short circuit that loop in a bad way. Yeah. And I don't know all the details, but I just know uh, to, to be aware of people that that might be not a great idea. Mm -hmm. 